Hello everyone! Before the conclusion of Book 2 Chapter 6, I want to tell you one last time about our featured sponsor this chapter, Audio Fiction 101. Audio Fiction 101 is an online course for anyone interested in audio fiction. It's created by the team behind Wolf 359, Time Bombs, and the newly released and brilliant Zero Hours. Seriously, these are some of my favorite creators working today. If you take their course, you will not regret it. The course is three hours of content that'll take you through all the steps of writing and creating your own audio fiction from scratch. Needs-based scholarships are available to qualifying applicants, and if you use the code TOAFN, that'll tell them we sent you, which we appreciate very much, and it'll save you $15 on the whole course. Find this amazing resource at audiofiction101.com. That's audiofiction numerals 101.com, and remember to use the code TOAFN. Uh, let's see here. Other ways you can support the show. Uh, if you want to adorn your body with our emblems and devices, uh, you can head to onceinfuturenerd.com slash merch to see all the cool stuff we have on offer there. And of course, you can always become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash onceinfuturenerd and get you all kinds of cool rewards. Uh, also, like I said, this is the conclusion of this chapter. That means we are gearing up for another Ask the Once and Future Nerd live stream that is probably going to be on Sunday, November 17th, uh, late afternoon New York time, but we will post all of the exact details to our social once they are finalized. If you would like a chance to have your question answered on air, please send it to us by Wednesday, November 13th. You can tweet or post on Tumblr using the hashtag AskToAFN, and we will have threads on our Facebook page and subreddit for the same purpose. Or if you're a patron, you can DM us on Patreon. As always, we are excited and terrified for the questions you all are going to send. Um, okay, lastly, Rhiannon's going to say her thing about the content notes on this episode, but seriously, 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 um, this one gets pretty rough at times, even for us, so do check those content warnings in the show notes and take care of yourselves. All right, without further ado, the conclusion of Book 2, Chapter 6. This episode contains material that may be especially upsetting to some listeners. Please check the content notes in the episode description for details and use your best judgment in listening. The script for this episode is linked in the episode description and past scripts can be found at onceinfuturenerd.com scripts. The Once and Future Nerd Book 2 Myth Made Flesh Chapter 6 One for the Team Part 4 by Christian T. Kelly Madeira Now, I know it does not necessarily come easy to your kind to hold several locations in mind at once, given the corporeal limitations of your perception, but you're going to need to for the duration of the affair to follow. The morning sun was still low in the sky, and the grass still thick with dew on the cliffs overlooking old Armstrong Bay. But already the crowd trickling up from the city was abuzz with excitement. Near the start, and end of the racecourse stood a structure, a cascading slope of wooden benches ingeniously designed to be put up and taken down as quickly as possible. 
due to the illicit nature of this event. The location and height of these seats made them hands down the best available, which is why they were at this moment filled with various vagrants and vagabonds, being paid to hold seats for the wealthiest spectators. When their patrons arrive, these enterprising individuals will of course leave the benches to stand huddled with the other unwashed masses straining for a decent look at the race. Amidst this milieu were two very meek and nervous-looking country preachers, flanked conspicuously on either side by two of the best-armed, best-trained elvish knights you would ever set eyes on. A few rows behind and above them, keeping keen watch on this peculiar foursome, was, simply put, the highest-ranking military officer in all of the so-called civilized realms. Not far beneath their feet, in the shadows of the raised seats, worked the artisans of those trades which require additional discretion, even at an illicit horse race. Here, a boy of 17 years approached, carrying some satchels with a grace and care that was entirely unlike his usual boisterous presence. Some 30 yards from the foot of the raised seats, that is, just the racetrack's width away, was a covered pavilion in which the racers are permitted to swap their mount and tack once during the race's 11 laps. Here was one woman of 16 years and another woman a few years her elder. Both wore hoods pulled low over their eyes, but the younger was considerably more fidgety than the elder. Stop it. I'm not doing anything. This is your job, remember? You do it every day. I'm not allowed to be nervous at work. Not when Relo Teet's looking for us, you know it. Farther away from the raised seats and towards the cliff's edge, there was a raised platform which held a large and sturdy chest of oak and iron. It was surrounded by no fewer than a dozen heavily armed and gruff-looking men in tattered goldenrod cloaks. They also had their hoods pulled low. Not terribly far from them was a woman of not quite 30 years to whom the seated preachers bore a striking resemblance. She was pacing between the various vendors and merchants nearby, and unlike the girl in the pavilion or the brigands on the platform, she made no effort to hide her face or her nervousness. From the platform with the chest, it was less than five yards to the sheer hundred-yard drop that ends on a rocky beach. About three-quarters of the way up the cliffside were a slender, golden-haired elf and a broad, grey-haired man. There was a rope tied between them as they climbed, and another rope ran down from each of them fastened to something on the beach. The broad man hammered a metal spike with a hook at one end into the rock, and then tugged on it to make sure it was secure. Having done so, he nodded to his comrade. I would of course be remiss not to call your attention to the stables, where riders and their retainers soar to their mounts before the race. Each species fed off the energy of the other, until both were nearly beside themselves with nerves. Poor sweet horses, frequently clever enough to read the emotions of their masters, but rarely clever enough to simply kick things until they are the masters. But I digress. Anyway, it is in this state of heightened nerves and excitement that one of the riders was approached by a dark-haired woman in peasant's clothes, with a hand on her hip and a glint in her eye. Can I help you, miss? Hi. 
believe you can. And finally, of course, there was the ocean vessel anchored somewhere nearby. Its sails were very intentionally concealed at present, but I can tell you that they were blood red. And on this ship, a young boy cradled an infant with eyes so light a shade of brown that some might call them orange. But there's not much for me to tell you about this place. At least, not right now. Under the seats grew crowded. Far too crowded, in fact, for the boy with the satchels to do what he needed. He looked around, racking his mind for a solution. So is this happening or what? Hold your horses. <laughs> yeah. I just need a quick freshen up. <laughs> I ain't got much time, the race is about to start. Just one question, which perfume you like better? Rosewater or ether? Ether? I never... As Gwen held a dampened rag over the short man's mouth, he rapidly crumpled into a useless heap. And she quickly set to disrobing and then binding him. Do you see your daughter? Point her out to us. In the seats beside the racetrack, the two preachers remained stolidly silent, their gazes fixed straight ahead. Excuse me. Your better is speaking to you. Ow! Don't you pinch me! Memory pass! Really? She pinched me! Major, mind your temper. I see her. 25 yards south of the winner's circle. See? Has she signaled to us? Not yet. Major Zicard unsheathed a diminutive and discreet dagger and held it close to the Reverend Mildred's side. Lest you forget yourself again. Mildred squeezed Ben's hand as his jaw clenched in rage. Patience, Major. Yet even as Ree spoke thus, she was fidgeting with several of the myriad weapons on her belt. But the first serious mishap of the day happened along the cliffside. Do you think we're high enough? Mm, ten more yards should do it. Good thing, too. We're nearly out of... Are you all right? I... Uh, I'm all right. Damned bastard popped right off. Hold still, I head back up. What had just happened was a very common type of mishap in tandem climbing. One climber relied on a handhold that proved faulty and fell. But, tethered as he was to his partner with a rudimentary pulley between them, he merely fell a few yards and yanked his partner upwards, rather than meeting a very messy death. Indeed, this is routine and expected, precisely what this type of climbing is prepared to handle. Less expected, however, was the jagged rock between Yiluine and the pulley, on which the rope had caught. And worse, Brennan and Yiluine did not see it, even as their rope began to fray. Right, here we go. World's oldest profession. Beautiful day for it. <laughs> not a cop. <laughs> and for sure, definitely not a cop. If I was, I'd have to tell you. Everyone around the boy turned and stared. 
they considered him carefully and then departed to ply their trade elsewhere. Very, very carefully, the boy set his satchels down and opened them. Those in the stable turned to see the rider who had just entered. This rider was dressed just like the one who recently left the stable, but was of a wider and decidedly more womanly stature. Her entire face, but for the eyes, was concealed beneath a cloth mask, a common enough precaution against the dust of a horse race. But the riders stared at her regardless, and she froze in their collective gaze. Good morning. Oh, yes, sorry. Last minute substitution. And then the other riders, as if remembering it was none of their business anyway, shrugged and returned to their tasks. She's still not hailed us. I know. Is it possible she means to mislead us? Of course it is. If she's not hailed us before the riders are called, we shall remind her of the stakes. A very worried look passed between Mildred and Ben. In some ways, it's easier the second time. One is more tired, but one knows the route. Better hurry. They'll be calling the riders soon. Despite the difference in whether and how they chose to acknowledge it out loud, both climbers were keenly aware of what was at stake. If they were to fail at their assigned task, several of their comrades, including their leader, would surely die. A few easy ones here. And in the elf's restlessness while he waited for his partner to climb back to his level, his eyes began to wander. They found an elven frigate patrolling the bay. Don't worry, the Red Reaver was well concealed in a hidden cove. But as Yuluin's keen eyes focused on the warship, so much like the toys he played with and dreamt about as a child. One more big jump. Yuluin? Yes? Yes? Uh, I'm ready. All right. Here we... The rope between them snapped. It was only thanks to truly superhuman reflexes and grace that Yilluin was able to leap down to a rock below and grab the now tattered rope before it fell. <coughs> Got you, sir, I've no holds within reach. He tried for one anyway. Yeah. And almost lost his very tenuous hold on the rope. You need to pull me up a wee bit. <clears throat> Just hold on. And as Yiluin took a steadying breath to summon his strength, his eyes flicked once more to the elven warship. As you're already quite aware, if he was to fail at his assigned task, several of his comrades, including their leader, would surely die. I'm sure you've had thoughts before, which you wished would just leave you be, but simply refuse to. I should note, in passing, that the distance to this frigate was just about swimmable for a healthy young elf. Yeah! I've got it! Good! Just one more. Hold <laughs> still. I'll tie you back on. As the elf retethered himself to his climbing partner, that partner gave him a warm and hearty clap on the back. Well done, Yellowy. 
Well done. I thought I'd seen my last sunrise for sure. Let's try not to repeat that, shall we? Come. Let's finish what we started. There's less rope now, so we'll need to stay closer to get... Come on. And thus did they return to their assigned task with a renewed sense of urgency. Under the bleachers, Billy removed several cloth sacks from his satchels. They were sticky with some kind of grease. He scanned the wooden beams that held up the seats and then headed straight for one of the thickest. He affixed one sack to its center. Riders to your gates! All riders to your gates! Be safe, love. And you, my treasure. I'll see you on the ship. You damn well better. That's it. Stand them up. She's hailing us, Taid. Indeed she is. Relotit returned a distant wave across the track. What's she doing? She opened her eyes, it seems. Perhaps she can't see them. So be it. Stand them up. You heard her. On your feet. Stand, I said. She's waved again. She sees. You got him? Yeah, I saw. You good? Got him. God, Mia looks just like her mom. Dad's eyes, though. I count six elves besides Ree. Two with Mia's parents and four nearby. Yeah, same. Nice weather we're having today, ain't it? Unseasonably clear? Right. And as a gentle fog began crawling in from the sea, up the cliffside, Yellowin was fastening a rather large support pole into the rock. You'll have to climb over towards me so I can reach. We can't get far apart enough on this rope. Blast it all. This one's secure. I'm heading your way. Look. Fog. Jim. We haven't much time. Under the seats, Billy had already attached each of eight cloth sacks to the eight largest beams. Next, he removed a glass bottle from a satchel. Eight lengths of cord ran from this bottle to as many sacks. He placed the bottle on the ground with his foot nearby and waited. As Arlene saw and heard the size of the crowd surrounding the racetrack, her eyes widened. Though her face was already covered, she fidgeted with her mask, trying to pull it even higher. She's still not moving. What is she waiting for? Keep your eyes open, Major. I mistrust this. Should I send one of the sergeants over? Yes. Major Z-Card caught the eye of one of her cohort and motioned him towards the winner's circle. And over by the winner's circle, Mia noticed the elf walking towards her with purpose. She looked towards the gruff men near the chest. She tried to take deep breaths, which nevertheless caught in her quivering jaw and came out shallow and strained. How many nails is that? Three more to go. Galadin, help us. Riders, to your marks. Riders, get ready. At the sound of the third horn, Billy brought his heel down hard on the bottle. He watched intently as a puddle leaked onto the ground. And then the puddle began to smoke. And finally, to his obvious relief, the ends of all the cords ignited. As soon as they did, he took off at a sprint. 
and as Billy ran, Nia set off walking towards the chest and its stewards. Her heart was beating just as fast or faster than the sprinting young man. Just as the horses blew by the winner's circle, a very frightened Nia got close enough to the chest to attract the attention of one of the gangsters guarding it. A particularly short one, as it happened. Help you? Galligen's mercy be upon you. And as tears moistened her eyes, she quickly leaned in to kiss this short brigand on the cheek. Hey, who the fuck are you letting as the fallen knaves' shocked comrades looked around for the assailants, one of them squared on Nia and drew his sword. But this one was immediately shot by the sergeant that Major Zikard had sent over. Now seeing at least one of their foes, the band of rogues turned to the elf knight, some with bows. But Ree's many retainers made short work of these. Of course, once the bolts were set in flight, which the elves could have always chosen not to do, it was inevitable that they would strike some bystanders in the crowd. It is in this tumult that the elf nearest the winner's circle finally got a look at the brigand doomed by a kiss. It's not her! It's a trick! Major, kill them! Now, several things happened all at once here. One, the horses rounded the last turn into the completion of their first lap. Two, the elves nearest the two preachers drew and raised blades over them. Three, the elf nearest near squared on her and raised his crossbow. But four, this elf's life was ended as Brennan and Yillowin emerged from the cliffside and fog and entered the fray. Then five, a half dozen hidden elves took aim at the two new combatants and should have had them dead to rights, if not for six. And this is the critical one. The cloth sacks left by Billy expelled air and heat so rapidly that it ripped the beams under the seats to shreds. The raised seats could no longer hold the weight of their occupants. Within seconds, they gave way entirely. Meanwhile, the sound of this rapid demolition caught the attention of the elves near the winner's circle, giving Brennan and Yulouin the chance to kill three of their opponents and then dive to cover behind the sturdy prize chest. And back over by the seats, just as Major Zikard and her peer were returning to their senses, from out of the fog and smoke came flying a human-shaped blur, nimble as it was furious. An elf lined up a shot at Regan, but Regan was ready for it. And then Regan stalked off hastily on the hunt. Hey! Who's there? We're with Mia, we're here to help. But you've got to stay quiet and listen to us, okay? Let's get you going. Behind. Got him. Come on, gotta go, gotta go. Arlene, you ready? Yes, but get them up quickly. The horse is nervous even now. I'm gonna give you a boost, but you gotta swing the other leg over real quick, okay? Shit! Move, move, move. Hold her still. I can tell you're scared. You gotta calm down. Oh, well, why didn't you say so? God damn it. Is that your other horse? We'll find another and catch up. You gotta go. But where? Go! 
Find the horse. wrong time. Stay down. She's got to reload. When she does, I'm gonna bait her into shooting. You watch where the bolt comes from and you let loose in that direction, got it? Yeah. Give her everything you've got. As Jen concentrated deeply, she stole a peek over the back of the unfortunate horse. Or at least she tried to. Get down, stupid. I can't see anything. Neither can she, which explains us still breathing. That won't last for long. You just gotta get ready to blast and then we run for another horse. Wait, aren't there people over there? She doesn't care, and right now neither can you. This is her or us. Anyone else is just luck. And luck ain't anybody's fault, right? Right? Right. And though Regan was not attuned to these things, I can tell you about the little bit of stored potential that Jen let dissipate into the ground at that moment. Okay. Ready? Regan unclasped her hood and draped it over one of her blades. She lifted it up over the horse. Now. Move. Jen took off running, and after a moment of uncertainty and almost consternation, Regan did the same. I think that's the last of them. Help me with the ropes. Their foes dispatched, Brennan and Yiluin fastened several ropes to the now unguarded chest. Here they come. Yiluin stood at the ready, with a hook in his hand. And as Arlene's mount blazed past, it was again thanks to his reflexes that Yiluin managed to hook a rope onto the harness that Arlene had affixed to it. And thus the horse towed the chest behind it as it raced towards the cliff's edge. Now this next part is a great credit to Arlene as a rider. Though Jen's fog undeniably helped, it is still not many equestrians who could intentionally drive their mount straight off a cliff. Yeah. And after a heart-stopping split second of being airborne, the beast and its passengers fell into a very sturdy fishing net. And as the net descended, so did it pull up on two ropes strung over a wheel on each of the poles Brennan and Yellowin had affixed to the rock face. And so did each rope pull up on a very heavy bundle of sandbags down on the beach. So heavy, in fact, that after a brief moment of terrible speed, the net's descent to the beach slowed to be quite pleasant and peaceful. The horse was, naturally, still kicking like mad. Might have helped you if you'd done that sooner, friend. But with its legs dangling through the bottom of the net, it could do no harm with all its might. Is everyone all right? Mia! Is that you, love? Oh, thank God. Is anyone hurt? I don't think so. Nia, you have to jump. The net will soon be too far away. Who in Galadin's name are these people? Where are the others? Damn it! So be it. Yellowing, you go down with them. Send the net back up. Be sure to cut some of the bags like Jen said so it'll still descend for us. Get the chest on the sled and push it out of sight. Then come back up if you can. I will. And I never fully thanked you before. I expect repayment, so you'd better stay alive. And with that, the elf took a perfect athlete's dive off the cliff and into the net. And it wasn't long after that Brennan heard the sound of another horse approaching. 
He readied his axe, but soon recognized Regan and Jen. Did the net work? Perfectly. Oh, <laughs> Yellowwing? I sent him down with the others to help keep the chest out of sight. Thought you should know he saved my life while we were climbing. Good, good. The net should be coming back up any minute. And as Brennan, Regan and Jen waited for their conveyance to return, some of the fog around the cliff's edge began to disperse. And then the carnage that surrounded the winner's circle became clear. Bodies lay shot through, trampled and bloodied all around. None wore fine clothes. Many looked as ragged and threadbare as Regan was when you met her. And quite a few were younger even than Jen. Jen closed her eyes and took steadying breaths. Brennan bowed his proud head in a silent prayer. But Regan, Regan stared at the faces of the dead, her eyes burning and her jaw twitching. Now I regret to inform you that in this moment, everything went very badly astray. And I promise we shall return to that bit of misfortune just as soon as there is more to be said about it. But first, I must return you to that boat anchored off the bay. There, Nelson was looking after a child when no one else could or would. Come on, don't tell me you need a change. <sighs> Lucky break. What do you need then? Uh... So when that child began crying, Nelson made a very simple gesture of kindness a playful waggled finger in front of its face to distract from whatever was causing the disturbance. Here, baby, baby. <laughs> and this babe in arms made a very simple gesture in return, one quite common for its ilk. He wrapped his tiny hand around Nelson's finger. And Nelson could not help but recall the last night's dream and of a similar gesture by a very dissimilar creature. His brow furrowed, and a look of recollection crossed his face. My enemy, Nelson, is nearer than you can possibly imagine. But this did not look like any enemy. The babe was, as you know, sweet and vulnerable above all else. Nelson shook his head as though trying to jumble loose an errant thought. But soon his face was even more grave than it had been before for some thoughts are not so easily dislodged. Okay, sometimes a dream's just a dream, right? And then the babe began gesturing towards the small escritoire in the corner of the cabin, where Nelson had stored the books from Armstrong Guard's library. You want to look at books? Nelson took out the books that he and his friends had acquired. Want the pictures, maybe? That might be good for you. And then the infant began to reach for one book in particular. On the totemic traditions of primitive Yordan. Uh, dude, what are you? The Once and Future Nerd is directed by Christian T. Kelly Madeira. It is created and executive produced by Zach Glass and Christian T. Kelly Madeira and co-executive produced by Jess Kelly Madeira. Associate producers are Ryan Cushman, Alex Story, and Sunday Vasquez. 
It is performed by... Rhiannon Angel. Garrett Arman. Dan Dobransky. Anya Gibeon. Ian Hawkins. Shannon Harris. Riley Jones. Paul Notice. April Ortiz. Juliet Prather. Frank Quares. Julie Reed. Gregory M. Schultz. Guest appearances by Morgan Conroy, Leslie Gideon, Josh Perot, David Tao, Zach Valenti, and Davis Walden. Production audio recording by Jared Paul. Editing by Brielle Akterhoff. Foley sound design and post-production mixing by Matthew Boudreaux. Tom Lee is our musical director and lead composer, with additional scoring by Chris Montalvo. For more, visit onceinfuturenerd.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Reddit.